Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben, and and I'm the director of student ministries here at Mission Point. And I'm really excited to be with you guys this morning. It is the first Sunday of 2016, new year, new start. And so today we're actually going to dive into what I believe and what Matt and Kondo and the, the rest of the staff here at Mission Point, what we believe to be the most important thing for this year. And actually not just for this year, but the most important thing in life. And so this week and next week, we're going to look at this idea. This idea of one, one thing that could change everything. Because when we think of a new year, it's kind of of what we think of, right? Like the opportunity to change. That's why we have these resolutions of that. And this year I have 365 days to accomplish blank. I have this goal that I want to obtain, and so I'm going to work all year to get this thing. And that's, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing, wanting to better ourselves and improve. It's not a bad thing. In fact, I can remember uh, a resolution that I had a couple years ago. It was actually uh, a resolution that lasted for three consecutive years. Um, but when I was in high school and middle school, track, that was my sport. That was my thing. And I was actually pretty good at it. In middle school and into my freshman year of high school, I did really well in competitions. I had some records, a lot of medals, and was doing really well. But my sophomore year, I transferred from a small Christian school to a large public school. I remember, remember on my first day, I walked into the gymnasium of Xenia High School. I looked, and up on the wall, there was this huge board that read track and field records. My heart started to race. My, my favorite event, my best event, was the 200-meter dash. And so I quickly scanned the board looking for that event, and there it was, men's 200-meter dash record. And I'll never forget this number. It said 21.7 seconds. Now, Usain Bolt probably ran that when he was like three years old, right? But for me, a high school kid, that was amazing. And in that moment, I said, that's what I want. In fact, I don't even remember the, the name of the guy who had the record at the time because it didn't matter to me. All I wanted to see was my name on that board. And it didn't matter if I only beat the record by a hundredth of a second. If it said 21.699999, it didn't matter as long as it said my name up there. And I actually think that record had been set in like 1993, the year I was born, right? It stood for over a decade. I was determined to get it. And so I actually chased that goal for three years, literally chasing it. As I would come down the straightaway, they had a clock with the time, and I would watch that clock with each stride, trying to cross the finish line in time to get that record. But as I look back, and I remember that, I I think I realized something. That truly, honestly, it wasn't the record that I wanted so badly. It was what the, the record meant that deeply what I was hoping was that maybe if I could stand at the top of the podium, then I'd be worth something. That if my name could be on a board, then I would have put my place in history. So really it had nothing to do with the record, but it had everything to do with trying to find value and worth. And isn't that the case with most of our resolutions? But they actually have a deeper meaning. Sure, we want to be healthy, we want to lose some weight, but isn't it because we're really hoping that if we do that, maybe people will find us to be more attractive and want to be with us? That that promotion that we're hoping for this year, yeah, it's a good thing to hope for, but isn't it because we maybe just want to have some more power and have more control over our lives? 
that relationship that we're really hoping will come through is just because we're hoping that maybe this year is the year we'll start to feel valuable. See, oftentimes the resolutions and the goals we set for ourselves have deeper meanings than what we say or might feel on the surface. So we'll spend this year chasing after something, working so hard to get it, and maybe you'll get it, maybe you won't. But will being skinnier actually stop you from comparing yourself to every guy and girl around you? Will getting that promotion actually make you feel like you have control over your life because there's always someone above you? Will that extra money actually make you feel secure? Will those grades actually feel like you're good enough? We're going to spend a lot of time chasing after a lot of things this year. But it's often those things that we chase, chase after the most that end up, end up leaving us disappointed and let down. But I believe, truly believe, that there is something, and actually really someone, that if we chase after him, we're not going to be disappointed. We're never going to be let down. So that's where I want to start us today. Looking at what would it be like if we embrace this one thing, the only thing that mattered. And that's what we chose to chase after. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 27. And if you don't have a Bible here today, we have a stack in the back and we would love to get you one so you can go grab one or you can put your hand in the air. But seriously, there's no shame in that. There's no shame in admitting you don't have a Bible. Like We want you to have one. Uh, So if you don't, please uh, go grab one or raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. It's our gift for you. But Psalms 27. We're going to look at verse 4. You can follow along in your Bibles, and the verses today will be up on the screens also. But here we go. This is written by King David, and this is what he says. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Here David is saying, I have wealth, I have a kingdom, I have women, I have money, I have power, I have an army, I have all that. But the only thing that I want in life is to, to be in the presence of God. The only thing worth seeking after is the beauty in the face of God. That's it, that's all I want in this life. And I believe that that could be true for us here today. That if we seek after God, we'll find everything that we've been looking for, and we might just find ourselves reaching a deeper level of satisfaction than we ever thought possible. And for our student ministry, this verse is actually going to be our theme and our focus for this year, because can you imagine a generation rising that is so focused and so in love with their creator and their savior that they leave everything else behind? And so students, tomorrow night at SOS, we're going to dive deeper into this, so please come. There's a little bit of sneak preview of where we're going as a youth ministry this year. But what I want us to do this morning, together, is to look at a story of a man in the Bible who trusted God and truly only wanted him above everything else. He's just a normal guy like you and me. He had ups and downs, failures, flaws, but he chose to make God his one thing. His name is Abraham. Some of you might be pretty familiar with Abraham. He's a, he's a pretty famous biblical character. So we might know a lot about him, but we're just going to take some time to get to know him. He actually started out with the name Abram. 
Uh, but God later changed his name to Abraham, which I'm sure was kind of frustrating, right? That God gave him a longer name. You know, a distant cousin shows up for a family reunion. Like, what's up, cousin Abram? He's like, no, it's Abraham. Yeah, whole big thing. God changed it, I know. You know, he's, his hand's cramping as he's writing that last syllable on all the checks he's signing. Like, it had to be kind of frustrating. And there's actually a lot of significance to the name change, which we're not going to dive totally into today. But I think we can learn a lot from his life. And so we're going to take some time to know him. To start, Abraham had two brothers. And one of them dies The other one gets married and moves away. And so his father, maybe trying to escape the pain of losing his son, picks up the family and and they move. And as soon as they get to this new place and Abraham starts to get settled into this new home, still grieving his brother, his dad dies. Now all that's left in the family is Abraham, his wife Sarah, and and Abraham's dead brother's son, his, his nephew Lot. So that's where we're going to meet Abraham. This is the place of grieving and mourning that God first speaks to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go. Okay, let's pause right there because right off the bat, God is just asking Abraham to leave something. Right? If you ever go somewhere, that inevitably means that you have to leave something else behind. There's a choice to make. God is actually very specific about what he wants Abraham to leave. The verse continues, the Lord said, had said to Abram, go, to your, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. He says, I want you to leave your childhood. I want you to leave your memories. I want you to leave all those safe places you went for comfort, that trail you would walk down when you were super angry, those guys that you would go golfing with on the weekend, that place you and your wife would go on all those dates. I I want you to leave. I want you to leave it all behind and go to, well, I'll tell you later. It's the situation that Abraham finds himself in. And honestly, I think I can maybe understand a little bit. I'm originally from Ohio, And so when I chose to to come to Grace College, I had to leave a lot of things behind, right? My mom, my dad, my sister, my three best guy friends I did everything with, my grandparents, my cousins, Chipotle. That was honestly probably the hardest thing to leave behind, right? But if you're a college student or if you've ever moved anywhere in your life, then you get this, right? The pain of of saying goodbye to something great and, and hoping for something new, That's what God's request for Abraham is. But listen to what God promises along with this request. Verse 2. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse whoever curses you. I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. And in that moment... Abraham's faced with a choice. He can cling to the comfort of home or he can be willing to leave and trust the promise of God and go for something better. Abraham says, okay. All right, God, you can, you can have my comfort. You can have my memories. You can have my future. You can have my habits. God, I'll go where you want me. Because God, I would rather be in your presence than anywhere else. So if this is where you're going, then I'll go too. Verse 4, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. 
He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. They pack up everything and leave. And they didn't have Facebook or cell phones. So this was a really a goodbye and a, hey, I might not ever see you again. Leaving the comfort of home and going into the total unknown. And maybe for some of you, this really resonates because there has been this burden, this question, this situation that's confusing you. And I just want to encourage you that God didn't give Abraham all the answers. He just said, Go. Forget safety, forget comfort, just go. And this can be really hard for us, right? As, as Christians in America, we can get caught up in the American dream of trying to move towards comfort, move towards security, move towards safety, not away from it. But God's promise on blessing was contingent on him being willing to let go of those things and leave comfort behind. And for some of you, I believe that God's greatest blessings for your life are waiting for you when you choose to forego comfort and instead go where God wants to take you. And again, I never imagined myself living in Winona Lake, Indiana, sitting on a stage here trying to drag out service as long as possible so we don't have to go back into the Arctic tundra that is Indiana during the winter. I had dreams of Mexico. I wanted to go back home to my family and my friends. But it was when I chose to forego the comfort and the safety of home and come here that God gave me some of the best and most amazing and rich blessings I've ever seen in my life. But I had to trust him. So Abraham says, God, I want you more than I want comfort. And they leave. But quickly a new test comes. Because as they're going, they approach Egypt. And and Abraham realizes that, well, he has a very beautiful wife. And so he's afraid that when they get into Egypt, that maybe the Egyptians are going to see his wife and be like, wow, uh, she's hot. We want her. Kill Abraham so we can have her. That's his fear. And so he devises this great plan. He says, all right, wife, Sarah, this is what we're going to do. We'll just say you're my sister. That way they can have you and they won't kill me. Great plan. But that's exactly what happens. They show up in Egypt, and everyone is raving over how beautiful Sarah is. And so Abraham says, well, she's my sister, and he just gives her up to the Pharaoh. And we see that Abraham was willing to trust God and give up comfort. But as soon as his safety and his security is in question, it gets way more difficult for him. Okay, God, yeah, I'll leave home, I'll I'll leave family, and I'll step out into this unknown. But God, honestly, this one here is a little bit harder for me. I think that's true for many of us. That we trust God enough to make us a little bit uncomfortable, but when our safety and our lives are at risk, we become much more hesitant. God, I'll make you my number one thing as long as you keep me safe. God, I'll let you be the number one thing for our family as long as you protect us. We cling to our physical safety and security. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be safe, but there is something wrong when we cling to our earthly safety at the cost of obeying God. In church, we are so incredibly fragile. A pastor I like to listen to, Matt Chandler, he puts it this way. There isn't a person in this room whose life can't be turned upside down completely by a single text message. 
We're so fragile. And Jesus never promised us safety here on earth. And if we make God being our one thing contingent on him keeping us safe, then we are going to miss out. You can carry a gun. You can eat all the right foods. You can wear a helmet. You can fight to keep the immigrants out of your city. But you cannot control your fate. You don't get to choose the moment your life begins or ends. Please listen. I'm not not saying that we should be foolish or unwise. We're called to be good stewards. But all the people we see in the Bible who are overwhelmingly marked by the goodness and the blessing of God, they received that blessing when they stopped clinging to their earthly security and they surrendered to God. David stood in front of a giant that wanted to kill him. Daniel was thrown into a den full of hungry lions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace. The apostle Paul was beaten and put in chains, and our own Savior Jesus was crucified. God's biggest blessings for us come when we stop clinging to this world and we choose to step out in faith. I think God knew that safety was a big issue for Abraham, and that's why he put Egypt in the path. He wanted Abraham to have a chance to work through this fear. In this past week, I was in a pretty bad accident. The short version is uh, my car uh, hydroplaned and I I spun and lost control on uh, I-75 North and I went across the highway and hit the concrete barrier head on at 60 miles an hour. But yet I sit in front of you now with only a small burn on my arm from the airbag. And I think sometimes God lets us have those moments to help us start to let go of this world. We don't need to cling to this place anymore. And I think God wanted to help Abraham let go of this world, let go of the safety that he was clinging on to so tightly. So God was gently but aggressively teaching Abraham this lesson. And so God actually allows a bunch of plagues to come on Egypt and the Pharaoh realizes what Abraham has done and he kicks him and his wife and all his family out. And I wonder if Abraham wasn't ashamed of what he'd done. But in that moment, I'm sure he grew in his awareness of God's glory being more important than his safety. So Abraham and his probably very angry wife, Sarah, and his nephew, Lot, they keep traveling. The Bible tells us that both Abraham and Lot were very wealthy. They had a lot of possessions, a lot of livestock. And so they they come upon this problem. As they're camping out and, and moving to this place that God is taking them, they just don't have enough room for everyone. There's not enough grass for all the animals to feed. And so there starts to be some feuds and some fights, and they decide, hey, it's just best if we separate. And there's this really great plot of land that's fertile and and close to the city and it's just the best land but Abraham defers and and lets Lot have the choice very selfishly Lot chooses the best land and, and leaves his uncle Abraham with second rate not so great land because here's the thing Abraham isn't chasing after the best real estate He's not trying to get into the newest and best 
development. He was willing to give up his comfort of home and go wherever God wanted to take him. And Abraham is learning to let go of the safety that he holds so dear. He's learning to care more about God and, and care more about obeying God than his own safety. So real estate, no big deal. Hey, Lot, you can have the best land because I'm not tied up in this real estate. I don't care which neighborhood I live in because I guarantee no man can build a house as beautiful as God. Can I just be honest with you guys for a second? I love Pinterest. I can get lost for hours in in boards of countryside homes and DIY projects, but I think that Pinterest could maybe be one of the biggest enemies for Christians. Because I get so lost dreaming of the house that I want to be in that I forget about the neighbors that live next door to the house I'm in now. And there's no problem with wanting to have a nice home and wanting to do DIY projects. But when I become more concerned about where to put my 4K TV than I am about whether or not my neighbors know Jesus, then I just traded the presence of God for the presence of Chip and Joanna Gaines. And let me tell you guys, every show on HGTV will be put to shame when we get to heaven. So Abraham doesn't waste time with property wars because he's too busy seeking after the beauty of God. And then God appears to Abraham in a vision. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then in the most Lion King Simba and Mufasa moment of the entire Bible, verse 5, he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If you can indeed count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham has been waiting for those words his entire life. A son. And now it's promised to him. See, Abraham has no children. So when he dies, the family name, everything dies with him. But God has now promised him a son. Truly the only earthly thing that Abraham wants above anything else. But here's the kicker. The Bible tells us that Abraham's wife, Sarah, can't have children. But Abraham goes home and and tells Sarah that God has just promised him a son. And Sarah, who I'm sure is still a little bitter about the whole Egypt thing, uh, gently reminds him, hey, great promise, but I can't have kids. God promises this son, and that's awesome, but we can't have a son. So, and instead of waiting to see how God would come through for them, Sarah comes up with this idea that Abraham could sleep with her servant and get a son that way. So that's what they do. 
And we could sit back and judge them and be like, Sarah, why would you give your husband that option? Abraham, if you were a good husband, why would you even take that option? Like, I thought, I thought you wanted God above everything else. Why are you doing this right now? But don't we do the same thing? Aren't we equally as impatient? The children can be stressful. And so, so instead of taking the time to pray for them and to seek wisdom and help, we just bury ourselves in work so that we don't have to go home. Studying and paying attention in class can be hard and boring, so we just use spark notes and cheat on tests. We know God said that sex is for marriage, but that's a long way away, and waiting is too hard, so we just run to pornography or we mess around with our boyfriend or our girlfriend because it's just easier. God doesn't give us the answer that we want in the time that we want, and we find a way to make it happen on ourselves, and we just hope that he'll spare us from the consequences. Thankfully, we have a really gracious and loving father who promises to work out all things for our good, but I think we would spare ourselves a lot of scars if we would stop giving God such a short timetable. And God exhaled light. He breathed the entire universe into existence. I think he can handle giving us what we need when we need it. And Sarah's slave ends up getting pregnant with a son. But the slave and Sarah start fighting, and Sarah actually ends up kicking the slave out of the house. Guys, guys, I'm telling you, the Kardashians drama has nothing on some of the stories in the Bible, right? So God shows up to Abraham again. But this time he introduces himself as God Almighty, which I think is God's funny way of basically saying, Abraham, who, who do you think you are? Why do you keep trying to take the situation into your own hands? I'm God, I'm Almighty, stop trying to do it on your own, I've got this. And I wonder if Abraham doesn't kick himself again. Like, man, I messed up again. I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry I was impatient. I want you to be the number one thing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And Abraham actually is at this point now 99 and his wife is 89. Way past childbearing years. But God tells them that in a year, they'll have a son. And even more than that, the son is actually going to be from Sarah. And sure enough, Chapter 21, verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. Finally. This thing that we've been waiting for, this thing that Abraham has been expecting and hoping for his entire life, we finally have. It's the one earthly possession that Abraham wanted above anything else. And he gets it. He has a son. And even so, even though Abraham has struggled to be patient, even though now he finally has the son that he wants, we're going to see that Abraham wants God above everything else still. How do I know that? Because of what happens next. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Okay, Abraham, I gave you the one thing you've been hoping for your entire life, the one thing you've wanted above anything else on this earth, a son. You have him now. So are you still going to even want me? He said to him, Abram, Abraham, Here I am, he replied. Then God said, 
Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moria. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Wait, wait, what? Sacrifice his son? Isn't this the thing that God just promised to him and gave him like pretty miraculously? Can you imagine Abraham's response to this, this command? God, are you crazy? I've been waiting my whole life for this thing. I gave up the comfort of home to obey you and follow you. I gave up the possibility of having land and being wealthy to come and follow you. And you finally gave me this thing and now you're trying to take it away? If there's ever a place in the Bible where you think a verse is missing, it's here. Because the very next verse says only this. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. No arguing with God. No cussing God out. No trying to take Isaac and escape and hide during the night. Now, I doubt that Abraham slept very well that night. I'm sure he was just tossing and turning, waiting for the sun to rise so that he could go and pack and, and get this thing over with. Trying to figure out what he's even going to tell his wife. But they load up. And they set out. We're going to pick up in verse 4 and read all of what happens next. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he carried himself and he himself carried the fire and the knife and the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Can you imagine how that question must have tore Abraham's heart to pieces? As his son starts to do the math and says, Okay, God, okay, Dad, I know we're, I know we're going to do this sacrifice. I, I see the wood, I see the fire. But where's the animal for the sacrifice? Something's missing here, Dad. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Abraham must have been walking so slowly, looking for any excuse to stop. He must have retied his sandals a dozen times and took water breaks every five minutes. But he keeps walking, one step at a time his mind racing, his heart pounding. But he doesn't dare turn back because he's waited his entire life and his entire life has built up to this one moment. I don't think it's a coincidence that he's actually walking up a mountain to the top. That everything in his life has built to this thing. And with each step up, Abraham is letting go of everything else in his life behind him. Remember the verse we started with this morning? Psalm 27, 4. 
one thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This verse is true of Abraham. The comfort of, the comfort of home, he gave it up. The chance to be wealthy and secure, he let it go. And now the thing that he's waited his entire life for, and he's walking up the mountain next to his son, the one thing he wanted in this world above anything else. God, I don't care about home and about comfort. I just want your presence. I don't care about land and money. I just want your blessing. In my whole life, I've been wanting this son, and now I have him. But God, if I can't have you, then everything else is worthless. But they reach the top of the mountain. And what happens next, I think, is possibly the most important verse in the entire Bible about parenting. Verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. He bound his son and he placed him on the altar. Now, most scholars believe that Isaac's son was between 20 and 25 years old. And Isaac, his dad, is over 100 at this point. Isaac could have easily resisted and overpowered his dad and completely ended the situation. But he didn't. And that means that this place that Abraham has reached of wanting and desiring God above all else, wasn't just some personal thing. But it's how he led his family. It carried over into how he parented. And his son could lay there, watching his dad get ready to kill him, knowing that the only thing that his dad loved more than his son was God. Isaac watched his dad lead their family and teach their family and how to trust God and love God above all else. When I was younger, my dad and I had a conversation about uh, persecution for Christians. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, son, if someone came into our house and pointed a gun at me and said, all right, you have to deny Jesus, renounce your faith, or I'm going to shoot you in front of your entire family. My dad said, son, I wouldn't do it. Even if you had to watch, because I would want you to know and I would want you to see that Jesus is the most precious thing in the world to me. And that might sound really morbid, but all of scripture echoes and all of history echoes with the voices of men and women who refused to love anything more than they love Jesus. And parents, what matters most to you is what your children will learn to value most. You get to set the example, and you can show your child that the most important thing is who wins the sports games, or what grades they get, or how popular they are, or who wins the election. You can lead your family in in putting their hope in earthly security, earthly safety, earthly comfort. Or you can lead them in seeking after the face of God and finding satisfaction in the only one who will ever truly satisfy. Because there is no beauty on this earth, no pleasure in this life, no goal or resolution that can ever be more satisfying than gazing upon the beauty of the Lord and dwelling in his temple. 
And Abraham and Isaac, as father and son together, are declaring that nothing else in the world matters to them more than God. He can have their lives, he can have their home, he can have their safety, he can have their comfort, he can have it all. Because all they want is the presence and the blessing of God. Abraham learned about the faithfulness and the beauty and the presence of God. And in the end, he knew there's nothing else in the world more precious. And how does this story end? Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. The Lord provided. Sarah didn't provide. The slave didn't supply, provide. The the lie, his cousin didn't provide. None of those things were provided. It was the Lord that provided. When Abraham was ready to give it all up, when he chose to chase after God and only God, that's when he found the biggest blessings that he was looking for all along. You know that track record? I never got it. I chased after it for three years and then I suffered several injuries that ended up ending my my running career. But it was in those injuries, it was in that pain and that darkness that I discovered the beauty and the blessing of God. The thing I had wanted all along, it took me losing the goal I thought I wanted and, and being broken to find it. And isn't that what we want? Don't we want to be satisfied by something that will actually satisfy us? Abraham knew that the only thing that could truly satisfy him was God. And so that's what he went after. And we can learn from his example. Don't we want to be a group of people that choose to chase after the only thing that matters? Don't we want to be parents and students that forgo the comfort of this place to go for something that will truly satisfy? And only God can promise us eternal riches and the deepest joy we could ever know. So I want to leave you guys with a simple question this morning. In 2016, like Abraham, will you choose to make God your one thing? Let me pray for us. God, we praise you. And we thank you. Because you offer us joy. You offer us deep satisfaction. You call yourself the well of living water. God, we are so quick to chase after everything else and find ourselves dry and hungry and thirsty again. 
So I pray, God, that this year will be the year that you break through our stubbornness, that you break through our fear, that you help us let go of the comfort and the safety that we want in this world, that instead we will cling to you and that the one thing we will seek is to be in your presence. Amen.